delighted that um, Andrew was able to join us um, this afternoon. Uh, 15 years on since uh, he wrote it, and 14 years since the publication of um, Iris Murdoch, As I Knew Her. Um, Andrew, of course, is incredibly well known for his work with the, uh, with the BBC, for um, many works of fiction, uh, works of non-fiction, of course, a new uh, work on Darwin, uh, just published as well, which he'll be um, tour um, speaking at various events around the UK, and, in, and indeed further afield. And it's, so it's wonderful that he's taken the time out of, of that, um, that thought process about Darwin. Uh, to come to us uh, this afternoon to talk about um, Iris Murdoch and the book uh, 15, uh, 15 Years On and his reflections um, on that. So, um, we, Andrew, we, we welcome Mr. Chisholm. Thanks so much. Thank for you coming. very much. And perhaps that's a good place to start our conversation, actually, just sort of c considering that the work. As, um, and I know you, we, we were, when we were talking a little bit earlier during the break, you said that. Um, you hadn't read it for a little while, but um, you I hadn't read it, it since I wrote it. So, yeah. um, and I had very—I was astonished when I read it last week how indiscreet I'd been. But um, <laughs> I was quite impressed by some of it, though, because I—I did write down. I wish I'd been a kind of echo man writing down the conversations of Jutta, but I, if I'd had a conversation with her, I did tend to write it down, and I was pleased that some of those were in there. But I don't think I was a very good echo man. And I don't think I asked the right questions. You would have all asked much better questions, particularly how philosophy people in the front row here. So, so re reflecting on it, and I, and I know, of course, um, you also wrote a, an, an article um, after, the, after the death of um, John Bailey as well, uh, re reflecting on his work. How, how, do you, how, do you perceive, uh, how do you perceive her now in your mind, thinking not just back to the writing of this work, but also back to, back to when you knew her? Well, I think I wanted to write the book because I was... Um, Fifteen years ago, the picture of her as an Alzheimer patient was so dominant that the film, um, if you mentioned her name to people who weren't in a gathering like this, but were, as it were, general readers, they tended to just speak of her as if she was somebody who suffered from dementia. And I wanted to recapture the wonderful, original um, human being who had written these novels which we're all here to celebrate and who'd had this particular take on philosophy. I know nothing about philosophy as you discovered Miles having, <laughs> having tea with me earlier but um, I still like hearing the words of those who do know about philosophy such as yourself. I don't, I li that's, that's very kind I, I, I suppose a little. Um, oh, great. So, How lovely. Cup of tea. Thank you so much. Wonderful. So reflect... I mean, the mystery is, it, if, you've, if you've known somebody, which I did know her on one level quite well, on another level I didn't know her at all, um, but I saw a lot of her, and I was taught by her husband, John Bailey, for three years. If you've known somebody on a pretty frequent basis, and you, you then read these remarkable books, you do sort of wonder where do they all come from, and what is the relationship between the person I knew and, and the book. And I, I don't think I've answered that question uh, to my own satisfaction, let alone any other readers in this book. But I've tried to. And I think there are preoccupations within the, within the novels, possibly things which I wish I'd been here earlier um, that you've been already talking about in relation to gender, trauma, um, the difficulty of human relationships, the madness, the insanity of falling in love, the damage it does to us, the fact that we're all... Um, prone to 
make these crazy emotional adventures and so on. This is what she seems to write about. Yes, absolutely. So, obviously in the book you reflect on your readings of the novels and, and as you say, there's a, there are good elements in, in, as you say, in, in almost all of them. I know you're, you're keener on some than others. Has your view of her fiction changed in the last uh, 15 years? Yes, very, very much. And I was shocked. one of the things which shocked me about this book was how breezy... I do say at the end that I was shocked by my earlier reactions to her asking me, which she did, would I write her biography? Uh, I didn't want to write the book, and the reason she asked me to write it was that she knew I would never write it. Um, she wanted it to be known that somebody was writing her biography so nobody else would do it. Because she was embarrassed by the prospect. So, some publisher in London by the name of Richard Cohen got it into his head that while she was still alive, somebody should um, write her biography. Uh, now we've all read Peter Conradi's biography. You can see especially why she felt she didn't want this story to be told while she and all her nearest and dearest were still alive. Uh, I don't think anybody who knew her on the kind of superficial level I knew her had any conception of quite what an adventure her, what her life had been from an emotional point of view. But um, quite apart from that, she was, as most writers are, she was an instinctively uh, inward, private person. So I think the idea of biography was something that she shied away from and very much disbelieved in. I mean, I, I remember having several conversations with her in which she said she thought, for example, T.S. Eliot was absolutely right to specify there should be no biography written of him, and that if you want to find out about a writer, you read their book. You don't read tittle-tattle about their private lives. And I think uh, the older I get, the, the more I share that view. But you ask me, have I changed my mind about the novels? Um, yes, I think that... The, the more time recedes, the more one sees that a novel like The Sea of the Sea, uh, The Black Prince, they're very remarkable books, and nobody else wrote books like this. Mm -hmm. um, they're not, strictly speaking, philosophical novels, but they are novels in which philosophy and the way we all think about life, and as I say, the way we respond to the chaos of being in love or not being in love, um, they're all explored in the most extraordinary way. And I think her reverence for Shakespeare, which particularly shines out in The Black Prince, I think certainly one of my favourites, if not my favourite, um, she had that uh, abundance, she had that imaginative abundance of characters and ideas and conversations and thoughts about life bubbling through her in the most extraordinary, prodigious way, and, uh, and that's certainly something which I'm aware of more and more and more. I mean, many of the works of her contemporaries, however clever they may be, seem a little bit flat to me compared with the things that she was brave enough to do. Yeah, and, and, and a brave novelist, I think, throughout her career, bringing in some of the, the issues that we've been highlighting and, and will continue to highlight through the conference. And of course, the other thing about her, which I don't know what you all feel, when she was, I mean, obviously, there are very few in this room who are old enough to, um, to have read them as they came out, these novels, because you're all, by my standards, amazingly young looking. But um, at the time, almost all the novels seemed revolutionary, particularly in their approach to the emotional life, 
to gender, to sexual orientation, and so on. I mean, when the bell appeared, I was only a little boy when the bell appeared, but I mean, I can remember my parents talking about it and speaking about it in absolutely shocked tones. The idea that it might be admitted that members of the Church of England were homosexuals um, <laughs> was absolutely horrific to my mother, who went to the early service every week of her life. Um, even though everybody in Bertie Thomas knew uh, that the Church of England would collapse if all the gay members were asked to depart. Um, nonetheless, nobody talked about it. And here was a novel exploring the nature of the religious temperament, sexuality, sexual orientation, quite openly. And um, many of the things in that book, which today would seem commonplace to, all, to the, all the younger members of this audience, absolutely commonplace, they were completely revolutionary. And um, she wasn't only so emotionally intelligent as to talk about them. She was a kind of prophet, I think. Because now one, you know, can't open a newspaper without the whole issue of Anglicanism and um, the sexual life being explored. Mm. Yes, and, and it explored to obviously much greater length, certainly when the bell came out in 58, of course, but pre-Wolfenden pre and everything else. So she was very sound. I mean... Uh, one of the things I slightly regret about my book here um, is that I do make a slight guy of her and John Bailey and some of their views, and some of her views, particularly when she was defending Mr. Paisley, um, do strike me as fairly silly, I must admit to you, but um, uh, we're all silly. And uh, one friend, when he read this book, when it came out 15 years ago, quoted uh, the lines by W.H. Auden, on Yeats, you were silly like us, your gift survived it all, and certainly her gift has survived it all. And um, although I do quote opinions such as her lover, Mr. Paisley, um, on the whole, I think her opinions have stood the test of time remarkably well. Both her exploration of theology and Plato uh, and the more sort of workaday semi-political questions about whether there should be women priests and that sort of thing. She was tremendously keen advocate of all that. But in one of the books on the table, it probably is in Peter Conradi's book, there's a wonderful photograph of her and John Bailey going to a party. He's dressed as a, a bishop's wife, um, and Iris is dressed as a bishop, but they're holding up banners saying women bishops now, I think it sounds like, <laughs> which is very, very characteristic in lots of ways. So to, to take you back in time a little bit further than 15 years. Yes. Uh, you you were, had been asked to, uh, to write the biography, and then, of course, ultimately, John Bailey asked, asked Peter to, to write one. And, uh, what, what was the, the moment in, in your mind we thought, I, I, must, I, I must also now write something? Was it um, after her death, or were the um, ideas fermenting already? Um, no, I didn't really want to write it, and, uh, ever. I didn't want to write a formal biography of her. Um, it's not just that I would have been embarrassed to know the stuff that's in the Peter Conradi biography. Because if you know somebody socially, and particularly if they're older than you are, and they're fairly... Um, well, at one point in the book, I'd forgotten this, but the BBC came down and interviewed me once, and they said, what is your relationship with Iris Murdoch? And I said, the closest I can get to it is Julie Andrews in The Sound of Music, and the <laughs> abbess who sings Climb Every Mountain. And, 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 <laughs> 
And it was a bit like that, my relationship with her. And she indeed looked rather like the abbess in The um, <laughs> Sound of Music. She looked very like the abbess, and she would have made a, an absolutely top-hole abbess, apart from the emotional side of things, which might have been slightly chaotic. But um, I don't know what I was going to say now, but I was... Um, what was I talking about before? We were talking about your, uh, the, the first developments of the book. Oh, I know, I know. But, oh, yes. Well, I mean, because of that being the relationship, I would have been far too embarrassed, whether she was dead or alive, to write the book that Peter Conradi had to write. Somebody nowadays, biographers, you have to tell, uh, tell about love affairs and quarrels and all that sort of thing. But um, nonetheless, in a kind of, although infinitely um, junior way, I, th I thought I had been a kind of man to her Goethe. I did revere her, uh, while also thinking she could be incredibly silly in some of her views. And so I wanted to re record the actual person I'd known. And also, although I'm mean about John in this book, I loved him dearly as well. And um, I wanted to, to recapture the strange nature of their relationship and how they appeared to people socially, because they were very, they were adored. Um, both in London and in Oxford. And they were, they were cherished because they seemed vulnerable. They seemed like ch babes in the wood, really. And I wanted to capture all that because I felt the film, brilliant as it was as a film, um, and moving as it was as a film, had taken us away from reality. And I wanted to recapture some of the reality. And also, because it's a chatty, rather lightweight book in many ways, mine, not a, I don't think she was lightweight, but I am. Um, I wanted to, to capture some of the most ephemeral things of all, which is the conversations and what it was like to be with her and what she liked drinking and what her clothes were like and so forth. One is interested in that. I mean, even if, you're, even if you were writing the life of Socrates, you would, you would actually be quite interested in knowing what his tastes were if you took him into a restaurant in Athens. <laughs> And the tastes were rather um, diverse and um, eccentric in some ways, weren't they? Um, she, loved, she loved food, but sort of never ate properly, and it, it always strikes me now as slightly sad. I wonder if she always just messed about with food, not just when it was one of John Bailey's appalling concoctions, which um, nobody actually wanted to eat, but if you went to a restaurant, she would always be like a child being taken out, saying, I want to have Osobuto, it's my favourite thing. And she hardly ever finished it, just sort of pushed it around the plate while she was talking. Partly because she, she was, it must be said, a very, very heavy drinker. And you, eating and drinking doesn't, don't always go together. Sorry, so I'm not allowed to say that. You can say what you like. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, I'm, and, I'm, and I'm sure once we open the floor to questions, there'll be some, some, some fascinating questions. Um, you, you talked about um, some, some regrets about the book. Yeah, uh, and, and, and certainly... Um... Well, one, I think one regrets um, hurting other people's feelings. And um, certainly when you get... I'm 66 now. When you get past the age of 60, you start, when you wake up in the middle of the night, thinking of all the unnecessary hurt you've caused by one thing or another. And um, certainly writing this book, I, no I now realise, caused hurt of a kind I've been unimaginative enough not quite to imagine when I was writing it. So, th so that one regrets. Mm -hmm. And I think I regret in a way, although I wanted to write the chassis kind of book I've described, I, I wish I'd 
been more seriously engaged, but maybe there's a chance to be when I come to one of your conferences as a, as a member of the audience Absolutely. rather than the speaker. We'd be very welcome to, 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 very um, welcome. to engage with the work, and, because she, she was a very serious artist and philosopher. I don't mean that the work is, uh, lacks gaiety and esprit and joy, because it, it, it's full of it, and it's funny too, but uh, she, she was a totally committed artist, and all the reflections she makes in the novels and uh, non-fiction of the later period about the flaying of Marcias, that myth that meant so much to her, um, and above all, as expressed in the Titian painting, um, that, that, that really was how she conceived an artist's life, that, that you were flayed, that you, your skin was removed by the god, by Apollo. Of course. Yeah. So would you say that your work in, in some, in, was a, a reaction to, to Bailey's, uh, Bailey's trilogy? Do you think? Or well, I, mean, uh, I slightly petulantly in this book suggest that it was. Yes, I just wonder, if um, reflecting on it now with a, with, with a little bit of I distance. Mean, when I read this book, which I, I really hadn't read it for, um, for 15 years, um, I was asking myself, what on earth possessed John Bailey, who was such a delightful and amusing, and in many ways, I would have thought, self-conscious person, to write the books he did. The, the, the first one, the, the first volume, I think he sort of had to write, whether he had to publish it, I, I don't know. Um, because I think when you've been through some awful experience like that, particularly if you are a natural writer, as they both were, you do write things down. You write them in letters to your friends, or you write them as journals, or whatever. Um, even so, even in that book, I felt there were things which shouldn't have been published. They were too humiliating to both of them. The second and third volumes, I just, uh, I mean, we needn't go into it, but I, for a start, he admitted that they weren't true and that he'd made things up. And um, the, uh, I think he'd really gone off his head by the time he wrote those books. I really do. Mm. And then the, and the, and the film just perpetuating something. And then the film perpetuated a kind of uh, myth, really. I mean, it's, uh, I, I, I don't sit in judgment because those who uh, care for the mentally ill themselves nearly always um, suffer some form of mental illness themselves. It's very, very catching if you're living with somebody who's who isn't linked to reality anymore. So, I mean, I don't, I, uh, to that extent, it's a judgmental book, and I'm, no, I'm far less judgmental now at age 60 than I was at age 50. So it would be a very different book now. I couldn't write now. it now. Yeah, it would be a very different book. I, I wouldn't be able to write it now. Yeah. So to that extent, I'm glad I wrote it, because there's quite a lot in there I'd totally forgotten, and the conversations are rather wonderful that she, she had. <laughs> as God, old thing, and questions of that sort, which most yes. people don't ask you at the dinner table. <laughs> Not generally. Yeah. I don't know, I mean, I wish I had been here for longer, and I wish I was going into all these things, because I, I'd love to hear proper philosophers talking about where she stands over all these great questions, mm -hmm. which she and her friends, Mary Midgley and Philippa Foote and so on, were brave enough to engage with when a lot of the philosophers in Oxford who were male felt that chaps don't really talk about all that rubbish, sort of ethics and religion and so on. Sure. 
And of course, think, thinking about her, her standing now, not, ju not only in, in philosophy, but also, also in fiction. Um, cert cert certainly, in, you know, 10, 10, 15 years ago, there was you know, a certain, following her death, in, indeed, there was a, uh, a slump in, in reputation. But um, when you were talking earlier, you said, you said that, you, you know, returning to the books, you have so much um, to admire there. Um, that she's probably in, in, in need of um, re-evaluation, not, not by the people in here, of course, but by more general populace. Well, I mean, you're obviously doing great work here, um, both in the conference and teaching. I mean, you teach the books, don't you, Miles, mm -hmm. here? And it would be lovely if some of the shorter, earlier books, like um, The Bell or um, The Unicorn, which I very much admire, could be on an A-level syllabus or something of that kind. Um, and I, I strongly suspect they will be one day. It, people's reputations, particularly those of novelists, seem to slump almost invariably when, when they enter old age or die. My wife's uh, rereading all the works of Angus Wilson at the moment, no relation of mine. So a great friend of Iris's, incidentally. Um, and reading out bits to me and reminding me how absolutely wonderful those novels are by Angus Wilson. Um, almost forgotten now. Mm -hmm. Again, not on, uh, in company of, of this sort. And Elizabeth Taylor and Elizabeth Bowen, um, and many of these writers that we have cherished so much, um, almost sunk without trace in many, many circles. And certainly as far as A-level uh, students are concerned. I think that um, Iris would be a very good subject for study in schools, because there's so much going on, yes, both yes, the stuff yes. you're talking about this week um, and the sociological side of things, which really is interesting, uh, and the emotional side of things. And also, if you, if you do think, going back to what I was saying about the bell earlier and my mother's reaction to it, um, I think it would be really interesting to, to read the bell with a group of 17-year-olds and see what they thought, both about um, the reflections on marriage, the reflections on what it meant to be gay, and all the, the religious stuff, which is fascinating. Think, thinking to your, to your own fictional work, I know you, you mention it in, in, in the book here, but I, I wonder if you could say a little bit more about what, what she meant to you as an, as an artist, where, as you began to practice your craft. And, um, and, and can you, you know, at, at, this, at this stage in your life, can you, can you, can you, you can see the influence more clearly, or do you think there's, it's, there's less? Um, I've just finished writing a novel, funnily enough, and when I read the first draft, I thought to myself, this is a novel by you, Andrew Wilson, but somebody else has very much been influencing you, and then I thought, well, it's actually a, <laughs> it's, it's a kind of irisy novel, basically. Um, it's, a, it is a, it's about two women who are two New Zealand Anglicans who realise they're in love with one another, but they're women. So it's a very St Anne's kind of tale in some ways. <laughs> but um, I've certainly been influenced by her, um, both in terms of personal encouragement, because uh, most people, I think, think it's a good idea just to, to hone your craft before you dare to pick up your pen or your laptop. And she was a great one for diving in and just write and write and write. And, uh, of course, the accusation when, when you do that is that you're writing too much or that you're being too profuse. But I've always followed her in that. 
and certainly in the actual craft of a novel. Um, whereas in the early days I used to just write books, I now always follow her advice, which was personal advice to me, that you should plot out the whole thing before you even, before you even start page one. You should know who all the characters are and what's going to happen to them and how they'll end up, even though you might change it as you go along. And, and you find that some of, some of the, the ideas and concerns that influenced her are also, and again, reflect. Well, I think they are, they certainly do influence me, and she influences me to this day. I'm constantly thinking about what she would have thought about things. Um, but she was, as well as being a thinker, she was a great craftsman. And when one met her, it was a bit like meeting um, somebody who just came from a potter's studio and was still spattered with clay because her hands were nearly always blue with ink. I expect you remember that when you were taught by her. And she wrote in a, with a fountain pen on an A4 pad um, wherever she was and whatever was happening. I mean, one saw her on Oxford Station catching up, rather like Trollope writing on the railway station. When, I remember when John Bailey broke his ankle once uh, and was taken into hospital and I went to see him. She was sitting at the end of the bed, but the, the pad was still there with the fountain pen going across the page. I think she was writing rather appropriately, given what had just happened to him, The Accidental Man. <laughs> <laughs> and it certainly was the title which applied to him in many, many respects. <laughs> Not that it's about him. But, um, so she never stopped, and she, she was a real craftswoman, and she, was, she prided herself on the quality of her prose, quite rightly. I think she was a wonderful prose writer, um, wonderfully observant. And she loved the music of a sentence. And she worked hard. She wasn't, uh, when people said, oh, she's just dashed it off, she, uh, yes, she was prolific, but she worked hard at those books. And, um, and she thought, as I say, not only about the plot, but about the whole shape of it. And I haven't done what you've all done, of go through all the archives and things, but I bet it would be very interesting to see the extent to which first draft and second draft were changed and mm -hmm. so forth. Absolutely, yes. How was your relationship with her? If we, we, we can talk a little bit about that. Um, obviously, you were taught by John for a few years and then you got, got to meet him. Was, um, was it a... Uh, a pupil-teacher relationship, or, or was it far, Mine far to her. no? Yeah, yeah. Was it was it was it um, far more? Uh, obviously, she gave you support, uh, encouragement, but the the informal friend, friendship grew. Uh, well, uh, we used to see a lot of one another. Um, I got married quite young, so my my wife was in the English faculty with John yeah. as a teacher at Oxford, and so we often went off to their house in Steeple Aspen. I mean, I think once a fortnight for ten years or so. Uh, and then I, would, I had a sort of particular friendship with John and used to see him, I think, once a month. I used to go and see him at St. Cat's, where he taught by then. And we have, we'd have lunch and then walk around uh, the meadow together. And then, little by little, um, I can't, it was long before any idea of my writing about her occurred. Um, I was moving more in the london -y kind of direction. And she suggested that we met... My sister had a flat very near her flat, and my sister liked going to Iris's favourite restaurant, which was called Dino's in um, South Ken, Gloucester Road. She didn't like posh restaurants, and she didn't like good wine, 
She always used to say, you mustn't allow your palate to become used to good wine. <laughs> you must live on plonk, because um, otherwise you'll, you know, you'll never drink enough, basically. <laughs> and, and, she, and I remember having a lovely lunch with her at Dino's and pushing the Aussie booty around the plate. And I said to Rachel Trickett, who was a friend of John Bailey's and of Iris's, also teaching in the English faculty, that I'd had this nice lunch with Iris. And she said, without John? And I said, yes, without John. And she said, that would mean the end of your friendship with John Bailey. I thought this was utter fantasy. But um, it was only after about two years had passed that I realized my little lunches with John never happened again after that. And there are several other examples of it which I'd completely forgotten. They were very, very close to a person called John Jones, who was the professor of poetry at Oxford. And Iris met Mrs. John Jones, who was called Jean Robertson, at Cambridge, during her year in Cambridge, when she met all the disciples of Wittgenstein and became so close to Elizabeth Anstrom and so on. And um, uh, Jean once said to, um, to Iris, it was after Iris had left St. Anne's and she had this routine of coming up to Oxford from London, having done her teaching at the Royal College. And then she would meet John Jones, who was, um, although he was the English Don, he was very interested in philosophy. And they met in a pub called the Roebuck and they drank a couple of pints of beer. Uh, then they had chasers, vodka, I think, chasers, and then they went to their separate ways. And when Jean Jones said this to John and Iris. John looked appalled, and again, it never happened again. Iris never had a tete-a-tete again. -tete so that, that whatever was going on behind the apparently very jolly surface of things, clearly John was very, very jealous and um, possessive of her in relation to his own friends. She had hundreds of friends, of course, and I was completely unaware of all that. So that in the last 10 or 15 years, um, we saw them uh, as a group, you know, uh, married couples together having supper or something, mm. but not, not a, a duh. But with her, I did, uh, particularly when she got this idea that I should write the book, um, she, um, she did see me a, duh, a lot. And then I'll just read you one bit of the book, which in a way was my favourite bit of the book. Um, I'd completely forgotten this. It's, just, it's, not, it's not me, it's at the beginning. I'd been to Reading University to look at the archive of Chateau and Windus, and here's a memo from the boss of Chateau and Windus, Carmen Khalil, 1989. Uh, could you go through Iris's files and reviews and look up names of people who could do a major interview of her for Arena, which must be some television program, I think. Ed Victor, that was Iris's agent, has suggested A.N. Wilson to her, but Alan Yentob isn't keen, too alienating. <laughs> um, in fact, we did make that program, and um, she took it terribly seriously, of course, because I think she began to realize, although there had been um, programs made about her before, that because of the way modern people now think about writers, that it was inevitable that the story of her life was going to be told. And she told quite a lot of it in that program, actually, in an oblique kind of a way. Mm -hmm. But of course, it was only until the publication of uh, the Conradi biography that, as you, a, a revelation and, in some respects, a shock as well to find. Yeah, I think it was probably a shock to everybody. everybody. Yeah. Um, I don't. 
uh, I still haven't quite, I don't mean in moral terms, I just in, in terms of assessing how she spent her time, how she had time to have all these love affairs and write all these books. I mean, the, the energy is prodigious. <laughs> but I mean, it is true that people of huge creativity, like we've already mentioned Eckermann. I mean, Goethe was far more energetic, both in that department and in literary department and in every other, than many other people. And Iris was a person of phenomenal strength when you saw her swimming, um, that sad film starts with them swimming, and then obviously she was, she was old and ill. But um, she was a very powerful swimmer. She was very gymnastic. Um, and John Bailey's first vision of her was seeing her whiz past on a bicycle, which is rather like a John Betjeman poem. But, um, you know, she was, she was sporty. She loved all the sport at badminton. And she had tremendous energy. Obviously, she had great intellectual energy. That goes without saying. I know we, we, we're coming a little bit close to time. I've, I've, I've promised, I've, no, I've promised the audience that we would open for questions because I'm sure. Oh, I see. Yes, well, that's fine. Plenty. But, but I just, uh, just, just to sort of conclude our, 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 our talk together this afternoon. Your what? Your 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 lasting your major lasting impression of, of her now is it as an artist as a friend? What 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 do you? Take, take I think I, I, I love her as, a, as an artist. I'm really grateful when I look at my bookshelves to see that these are they're friends, these books. I, I love reading them because you, um, it's not like talking to her, but there's a voice there which is so distinctive. And the stories and the characters and the situations they're in. All the reflections on Shakespeare and the Black Prince, for example. Uh, and... Um, uh, I, I, so, so that's one thing for which I'm incredibly grateful. But I also do think of her as one of the kind of wise women of our times. And I think the fact that I now realize, having got over the surprise of the Peter Conradi book, that the emotional chaos in which she lived um, is made into art in all the books. One used to think with the books that people can't fall in love 17 with 17 different people <laughs> and with all these permutations. And then you realize, well, actually, the author could. And perhaps, um, perhaps that is what the 1950s and 60s and 70s, to a smaller extent, were a bit like. There was this extraordinary revolution going on, emotional, moral, ethical, political, social revolution going on while she was writing. And although she wasn't interested in the technical side of politics, she was describing um, the modern world to itself in the most extraordinary way, I think. And I think, au fond, she was a, a very wise person. I, I look back to her. I mean, even in relation, I don't know whether... I'm not now talking about opinions, because I think opinions, in a way, don't matter very much but her take on the inner life, the importance of the inner life, the importance of the spiritual life, um, both in art and in one's personal day-to-day -day life, is something that she spoke up for, above all in The Sovereignty of the Good, which I think is one of the absolute masterpieces of her, uh, and indeed of anybody's writing in, in, in my lifetime. Um, I think we can, we can all look back to that with tremendous gratitude. Andrew, thank you. Not a bit. <laughs>